Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patented half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Welcome to the pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBA Strategies. And I'm Kristen Solda Sanderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. And today is a crossover episode. We're so excited. We've been waiting for to do this for, I've been waiting for this for months now. Yes. So we have four ladies here. There's four of us total. And Richard, of course, who's always here making sure we sound delightful. Um, We have Allie Lapp and Liesl Hickey who have a, a house race podcast and they are experts, Democrat and Republican experts in house races respectively. Why don't you guys tell us a little bit about who you are and your show, and then we'll talk about house races and the wonderful world of following the minutiae and details of the 5,000 house races that are up for grabs this cycle. Great. Thanks, Margie. Thanks, Kristen. Um, so I am probably, this is Allie Lapp. I'm the Democratic strategist, and Liesl and I host a podcast called House Talk with Allie and Liesl, where we dive into house races. I'm probably one of the rare political strategists who has really spent almost my entire career, which is now nearly 20 years uh, strong, in house races. I worked on a house race in my home state of Washington State um, when I was still in college. I moved to Washington, D.C. to work for that member of Congress who's still here and and probably going to be chairman of the Armed Services Committee if Democrats take over the majority. I worked for the DCCC in 2006, and in 2011, I started House Majority PAC, which is the Democratic Super PAC tasked with uh, electing Democrats to the House. Uh, this is Liesl Hickey, Republican strategist, and like Ali, um, I've spent pretty much my whole political career in house races. Allie and I's uh, career is very similar. We uh, both were at our party committees. I was the executive director of the NRCC in 2014 and uh, was a chief of staff on Capitol Hill for a while, working in um, districts mostly that are suburban, blue, trending Republican districts. And Allie and I, uh, when we launched our podcast and when we first uh, met, we saw we had so many similarities in common and how much fun it was for both of us who have spent uh, so much time looking at these districts, analyzing them, and coming together and being able to give a perspective from Republican side and Democratic side what was going to happen in this very contentious uh, election cycle. So one of the first things that I want to ask you all is, you know, when we are doing our show and we're digging into polls, there's tons of polling out there about Senate races. Well, tons, I guess, is a relative term, but there's lots of polling out there about statewides. But when it comes to House races, most of the polling we get is the stuff that Nate Cohn is doing at the Upshot. Which is brand new. Which is brand new. Tons of polls. Tons of polls. Multiple polls in some districts. Um, But that's, that's kind of... It for somebody who's on the outside, who's not either working as a pollster on these campaigns or or consulting on them, what or internal sh- polls from the campaigns, which 
can be very accurate, Selectively but, they, but not, they're not all released in the way that the upshot sure. is. Sure. So most of what sort of your average political junkie is going to be relying on is the generic ballot. D plus nine. If D plus nine, that means Democrats are going to pick up X number of seats in the House. How much should people be relying on the generic ballot as a guide for what's going to happen? I, I don't pay that much attention to the generic ballot when I'm looking at House races. I really pay attention to what um, the specific generic ballot looks like in each district because they vary wide, you know, widely. Um, I mean, I think that the overall national generic ballot, I mean, it gives you some trend lines over time as sort of what the overall mood of the electorate is. But in terms of looking at specific races, I really don't pay much of attention to it. Yeah, I think the generic ballot is a useful tool for figuring out how many races might be in play. So if this election cycle, if the generic ballot were, let's say, only plus two for Democrats, and that's the national ballot, you know, then you might say, boy, Democrats are really limited to playing in these 20 seats where you could possibly defeat these Republican incumbents because nationally the mood is only slightly pro-Democrat. But if the generic ballot were to climb up to plus 15 for Democrats, wow, then suddenly you're looking at a lot more races in play. So, you know, I think it's an interesting tool to see the overall mood of the nation. Um, but but I also think that in this incredibly, increasingly polarized environment, it can be a little misleading because you might have a Democratic generic ballot advantage of plus 60 in places, you know, right in Seattle and San Francisco. Um, but it's it does you still have a really strong Republican generic ballot advantage in other parts of the country. So it's it's a tool, but but certainly not, you know, you, you have to look at individual polls in individual races to know whether or not those are winnable. I mean, here's the thing that's funny about the generic ballot. I mean, first of all, it's, you know, it, it upsets Democrats that we need to have a D plus seven or D plus 10 advantage to even, you know, to, to feel that majority is on the table for reasons that, you know, because of gerrymandering and how people sort themselves. So there's that. Um, on top of it, not all generic ballots are asked the same way. So the Washington, uh, NBC Wall Street Journal poll, this is their thing is, and they've been tracking it a long time, which would you prefer Democrats to have control or Republicans to have control, which is quite different than who are you going to vote for, the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate, which is, you know, a different kind of generic ballot. And that's different still from the way the Washington Post battleground poll asks, where they actually name the candidates in each district in their poll, which is obviously more like how people are going to vote. And then in candidate polls, and I'm sure you guys have seen this too, people will ask the generic ballot as well as the named ballot, and they're not the same because you may feel you're going to vote for the Democrat, but then you know, if it's Allie versus Liesel, you're like, oh, actually, I've heard of Liesel or I haven't heard of Allie. And then you may have a different reaction than if are you going to vote for the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate. But that's all we have aside from, you know, this new onslaught of public polling and congressional races, you know, and and it's hard for people sometimes to really follow the individual races because there are so many. So you're looking at these generic ballot questions that are themselves kind of imperfect on their own. Well, I feel that the when when you ask the generic ballot in a specific house race and then you ask the named ballot, um, I feel like those numbers are increasingly tied 
um, more so than in past cycles. Do you do you all see that in your polls? Do you see a trend towards those tightening or or not as much? I mean, I guess it depends when in the cycle, right? Because if it's early in the cycle and now you have you know you have candidates who are not necessarily well known, it's a good tool to see where there's a gap. But as the candidates become better known and people are on the air, then I think they're a lot closer. It becomes a little bit less useful. I mean, it depends on what's going on in the state. I mean, you probably have you know you have a lot of states where there's a congressional race that's battleground, but are they also asking the Senate ballot if they're in a battleground Senate race, right? We were talking about West Virginia 3, or are they asking about this, you know, the Senate race in there and, and looking at the, the gap that may exist between how the congressional race plays and how the Senate race plays, and then states where there isn't a battleground statewide, are they not asking that? These are the kinds of things that go on in internal polls. You don't really see a lot in kind of the public analysis of what's going on in House races. So then if, if the public polling, you know, is kind of incomplete, the, the, the internal polling is is going to have a lot more information to it. For someone who is does not have access to that internal polling, um, you know, there are a lot of other indicators you can look at, like the 538 model. You know, you can do – they have three different versions of their house forecast. There's the light model, which says, just give me a forecast based on the polls. We're looking at generic plus any local polling that we can get our hands on. Um, the classic model includes things like fundamentals, fundraising, past voting in the district, et cetera. So, like, there are a lot of instances where a district may, you know, seem close or in the public polling, it seems maybe like it's favoring the Republican. But then you get these fundraising numbers that show that the Democratic candidate has just raised some absurd, enormous, eye-popping sum. I mean, how much should that influence people's thinking on like, well, this race may be here now, but gosh, the Democrat now has all this money. How much can this move? Yeah, I think they've done a good job of trying to build those models to take lots of things into account. So, you know, candidate strength, which includes fundraising for sure, and the fundamental underlying nature of the district. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Democrats, I think, certainly have the wind at their back this election cycle. And one of the challenges for Democratic strategists is we look at all these polls and you might see a dozen polls where the Democratic candidate is down three points, let's say. But they're not all equally winnable. And you have to really look at the underlying fundamentals of the district. And in a district where a Republican usually wins by 10, this environment may make it where that Republican only wins by three. But the fundamentals of that district may make it that you never could win that district. Um, so it's sort of sorting through the, the truly good opportunities and the ones that like, look, they're going to be closer than they ever have before. But getting over 50 in that district might be too too high a mountain to climb. And like, how much is this based on like human connection, right? I mean, it Ali, I'm assuming, doesn't meet with the candidates. You probably meet with some of the candidates, Liesl, right? You have Nate Silver's not meeting with candidates to decide how they do their models, but the other handicappers do meet with the candidates or they talk to the strategists on background to kind of get a flavor of what is happening in the districts. And that's different than like, I'm just crunching the numbers and giving an objective thing. Is that less subject to error or is it better to meet the, and talk to folks because that's how voters are making their decision? What, what, how do you look at it? Yeah, I mean, I think when, you know, when we went into the cycle, most people assumed that this would be a huge blue wave cycle. And, um, and so they were sort of not digging as much into those fundamentals and they were just looking at top line numbers. Many Republicans in these districts, if there's a wave or not a wave, they're going to outperform the president. They have repeatedly. And so they have something built in at home um, in terms of the structure of their campaign, their brand and their district, the positions they've taken, and just kind of the sort of candidate that they are that I think a lot of times obviously get underestimated in 
just sort of generic polling. And even sometimes when you're just looking at at their own district polling, there are things that get underestimated until the campaigns actually launch and start and voters are reminded about the sort of candidates that they are and the sort of positions they take and what they've done for their constituents. So um, I, I think the 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 serious handicappers do take all those things into consideration and they do spend a lot of time with the candidates and talking to them. And they are they are doing what Allie has said that that people do. They really do also look at like, what does this district look like? What does it look like historically? There are so many districts that you look at and you think, as Allie said, oh, this race is tied. And if you go and dig back into past races and what has happened, you see, um, I I feel like we could get a path to victory, but the reality is we can get to 47 or 48. Like there's just a ceiling in some places. And, um, you know, and I think some of the just public polling forgets about those types of things. So right now the the 538 model says that they are predicting an average gain or they're, 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 of all of the model runs, the average gain for Democrats is 39 seats. Now, if you want to give a prediction, you're welcome to do so, but I'm not going to pressure you into it because I've been dodging it every time I get asked. Because, uh, you know, it's still two weeks to go and there's st- still too many things up in the air. What I want to know is, so they have two other things which are kind of the outer bounds, right? Like these are their, there's only a 10% chance that it will be worse than this or better than this. Um, and that is Democrats gain 61, at like the top edge case, and then uh, Democrats gain less than 19. So let's talk about that first one. If Democrats are winning by six, picking up 61 seats on election night, what happened? What will have been the drivers there? I think the driver will be twofold. I think, one, it will be enormous Democratic turnout. I think it'll be um, pollsters all cycle underestimating Latino turnout, and they they do turn out and, uh, at a rate higher than a typical midterm. And you've just got, you know, Democrats coming out of the woodwork to turn out. So that's number one. And number two, I think what will have happened is all these undecided voters in these surveys that, you know, maybe have a Republican leading 45, 42 right now, the undecideds just really break 80, 20, 70, 30 for the Democrat because they say we need to check and balance. And Liesl, if it, let's say the other extreme happens, Democrats pick up fewer than 19 seats. Um, What will have happened that will have made Republicans sort of overperform expectations in that scenario? Like what are the things happening on our side that could wind up being only like a plus 19 scenario, keeping the House? Um, I think what will happen, well, to Ali's point about turnout, um, I think that Democratic constituencies won't have turned out and Republicans, and it's very much, as you know, Kristen, in our DNA to turn out as Mm -hmm. Republicans. Um, We vote in midterms and that we will have exceeded our expectations there. But also I think that independents will have to break with us pretty seriously. And I think if they do, they're going to be breaking with us on the economy. And um, if you look right now, I mean, this is the silver lining for Republicans going into these final two weeks is that voters who care most about the economy are with us by double digits. Um, I mean, we're facing a massive gender gap, as you know, which we can talk about later. But I think if there's any way to win independent voters at the very end and to have them not break against us, like Ali said, by by um, large margins, if they can break with us. And I think if they do, it'll be on the economy. That's how we keep um, that's our you know path to the majority. 
I mean, that, that's a really good, it's a good question, Kristen. I mean, I, you know, I think on the Democratic side, we have such great candidates and so many of them are well-funded. Like that is a thing that just sort of looking at kind of the models and the polling doesn't always tell you how excited people are about some of the candidates in a lot of these districts. Like anybody who was top tier talent thinking of running for Congress, like decided that this may be a good year. And you had a lot of races when it was primary season and they had like five or six, like pretty good, solid, qualified candidates running in primaries for on all kinds of places. So I think that's, you know, that's part of it. And I think you have a lot of Democrats on the base side who are like really enthusiastic about voting this time around. And on the Republican side, I mean, if Republicans were talking about the economy, maybe maybe this would be a different kind of election. I mean, I see a lot of Republicans doing more of the kind of Ed Gillespie strategy of, you know, following Trump's language on immigration and, you know, some of these more hot button topics that I don't, you know, that may work with some folks in the base, but does it move independence? Does it get people excited to vote? Does it, you know, does it, you know, make Democrats who are kind of not frequent voters think about sitting out? I, you know, I don't know if that's the case. Yeah, yeah. What, what are the trends you're seeing in the in the ads that are going up in the air uh, across these districts? Well, I think Margie nailed it on, nailed it there. You know, I, I think Republicans maybe saw a bump in enthusiasm after the Kavanaugh um, debacle, which I think it's fair to call it a debacle on all sides. Um, and I think feel like that made them kind of double down on the idea of using social issues and say, like, look, our only hope is to really just juice Republican turnout. And so I'm seeing a lot more um, social ads coming out of Republicans. It's immigration. You know, you've got in um, Kansas 3, they're going after Sharice Davids, you know, and they're talking a lot about the liberal mob. So it really feels like it's about that. And it's not about the economy at all. On the Democratic side, Still a lot of healthcare. I mean, they are riding healthcare out to the very end. A lot of healthcare ads. Um, you know, increasingly Social Security and Medicare with Mitch McConnell's comments the other day. I think a lot of Democrats are trying to sort of, you know, use that um, as a hook to talk about, you know, Democrats will protect Social Security and Medicare. Republicans are going to try to get rid of it. Lisa, do you think that's right? Do you think that most of these ads are about things like immigration? or Because I know that for a while a lot of Republicans have said, you know, They've wondered, should we be running on the tax bill or not? You know, the economy is really good, but is that the sort of thing that emotionally is driving voters in the way that maybe some of these more social or cultural issues? I mean, what are the messages that you're seeing candidates say, this is my best bet in the final weeks? Well, I mean, it depends district to district. I mean, there are, there's still in this battleground map, uh, there are a lot of districts that are Republican districts. So in some more Republican leaning districts that Trump actually won, uh, I think you're seeing more of what Alia talked about. There, there are those types of messages. But in the true suburban swing districts, the messages that are the positive messages coming from candidates are mostly about them being independent, that they're problem solvers, they're bipartisan, they're working across the aisle, they're focused on some local things and issues. Issues that they've worked hard on. Um, and, and then I think, you know, as we define Democrats, there, there have been a lot of character definitions um, and that we've seen across the country. But also, there's been a lot about taxes and spending. I've seen quite a few of those types of ads, and a lot of those are, are coming out of the are the um, the party committee, i.e., or the major uh, Republican super PACs. So I have one more question before I want to dive into the sort of female voters becoming female voter political activist question. Um, I, I want to talk briefly about whether this is a change election or not. There's a number that came out in the most recent NBC Wall Street Journal poll that 
confirmed for me something that I had been just curious about for the last couple of months, which is, you know, in a normal one of these elections where you've got a new president, the they've got control of Congress, the party out of power is going to be doing well, that part of the message is we need change, right? Voters are dissatisfied, they're frustrated, they want change to come to Washington, and so they're going to vote in the new party. Um, and my sense is that that's a more complicated message right now because for all that voters don't necessarily love all love President Trump. And again, it varies from district to district. You know, do swing voters want more investigations, more gridlock? Or do they think the Democrats would just be a check and balance? It wouldn't necessarily mean investigations, gridlock, et cetera. How are they thinking that through? And in this NBC poll, NBC Wall Street Journal poll, they asked, okay, who do you trust more on the economy? And I think Republicans won the economy by 15 points. Who do you trust more in healthcare? Democrats win on healthcare by 18 points. And those were the top two issues. But the third issue was bringing change to Washington, and Republicans were plus one on that question, which seems extremely odd given that this is Republicans are the incumbent party. I mean, what do you make of that? Do you, in my mind, that is something that is really making this a very kind of squirrely or atypical midterm. But maybe I'm reading too much into it. Well, I wish they would have asked bringing positive change to right. Washington because I wonder what that would look like. And it it doesn't surprise me as much as I think it surprises you because I think no one says change to Washington like Donald Trump still, mm-hmm. right? He is the incumbent, but the way he talks, the way he, you know, the way he does everything is so different than we've ever seen in in a president before. So, you know, I I, it doesn't. That doesn't surprise me all that much. I think people still think he's changing Washington. I think there are some people that think he's doing a good job of it, and there's others that think he's change equals destroy. Yeah, I think the the one question and that I found pretty interesting in a lot of the polling that I've seen is when we started asking about dysfunction, and that is really high on the list of what people care about in in these battleground districts. I mean, it's has been ranking like three or four amongst things that they care most about. And the thing that I, to your point, this is a sort of a squirrely election because I've always been hesitant to ever think that this was going to be a wave election because for wave elections, you really have like wholesale change, like districts that shouldn't go for one party, go for the other or for the other party. I mean, it's really, it's just, you know, everybody is wiped out and you're kind of helpless. Like there's not a lot you can do at a certain point. And that's how I felt in 2006 when, when we had what I think is sort of the last big, except 2010, but for Democrats, a big wave election. And that's just not the position that we're currently in right now. I think when we talk about women voters, the one thing that they're concerned a lot about is dysfunction. It is something that really terrifies them. And it's something they're worried about when they think about Democrats taking over Congress, that they'll just be more dysfunction. They really want to focus on people who are getting things done. And I think that's something as we pay attention, you know, as the polls close, where do people fall on that question? Yeah, every single focus group when I ask in the beginning, okay, how are things going around the country? What's the one thing that you're worried about? It's always dysfunction and bipart- you know, mm-hmm. partisanship and toxicity. It's always everybody. There's, you know, maybe one person will say, oh, healthcare, but everybody has this real, real fear about how, what the situation that we're in and that there is no coming back from it, that this is now going to be in the foreseeable future, just this incredibly divided, you know, 
tense, anxious country. And, um, and I can't blame them, right? And it's, it's totally bipartisan in that view, too. And the polls have shown that. I mean, I think it's higher than three or four. I think it's one or two, you know, in a lot of polls, because it's such a bipartisan, universal fear that is totally found and well-founded on basically by seeing how people interact with each other and watching the news. Um, so, um, and the change piece, when we did after election, when we talked to Tony Fabrizio and Joel Benison, who were the Trump and Clinton voters, they said they both had a question, like, do you think Donald Trump's going to bring change? Is that going to be good change or is that going to be bad change? They both had the same question that they used. And it wasn't just change or no change. It was what kind of change that well, was I, th- I feel like Tony even said that they, their question was something like, do you want to see like – like building on the pro- like making making changes reforms, but you know building on the progress we've made. Or do you want a wrecking ball? Like I I, I need mm. to go back and re-listen to the audio, but I feel like he used the phrase wrecking ball, and like mm. the idea of that being in a question. I mean, amuses me, but also is probably the right thing to have asked in that election. Right. Well, for so many voters that have an unfavorable opinion of Trump, they also feel like he's delivering on promises he made, and I have seen that in polling that it's like even though I dislike him. He's actually doing things that he said he would do. And for them, in their mind, they think that's change. So many people in Washington have said all these things and never did anything. And he's actually stuck to many of his promises and gotten them done. But it's interesting. I mean, he he really seems pretty hell-bent on right now riling up the base and not sort of trying to be a moderate bipartisan leader. One of my favorite examples of this is in his rallies, he's been talking about the opioid bill that passed. And he has said this line several times in it where he says, um, and you know, we passed that with very little Democratic support, I think is the exact quote. The bill passed the Senate 98 to 1. The one Republican, there was one Republican who voted no. So actually every single Democrat voted for that. So it's funny, you, you sort of picture if that were George W. Bush or Barack Obama, what they would have said is, I'm really proud to have led this bipartisan effort to tackle opioid abuse. Like they would have sort of made themselves a leader above the partisan fray. And Trump actually chooses to twist the truth so that he's more partisan. That's a really good example. I mean, there there are lots of examples of him <laughs> trying to just inflame the base, but that's a really good detail. I mean, it's a it's a choice that yeah, I don't think any other president. Would, I he mean, first of all, it. other presidents I think would just tell the truth and wouldn't actually lie. But also, like there, there's the way he chose to tell that story. I think says. Volumes and it's really interesting. And the opioid piece, I mean, we didn't talk about it earlier, but there are quite a few Republicans who are try- who have been running on opioids and, you know. And as an example of working across the aisle to actually get something done. Yep. Right, right. And, you know, it's interesting that the president is not even giving them cover like, we did something. We did something in a, you know, we did something good that people wanted in a bipartisan way, you know, right. that everyone needs, you know, um, or that most communities need. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. That's a good point. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Well, one thing that is for sure is I feel like no matter what happens on election night, we are going to be talking about this election as the year of the woman again. Year of the woman 2.0. 
Um, in a lot of polling, you know, the, in the NBC Wall Street Journal polling, you know, their generic ballot, and again, it's the who, would you prefer Congress controlled by formulation. But in the last two, they've had women are plus 25D. Um, when I'm looking at groups like millennial women, I mean, Pew found that, you know, millennial men are fairly evenly divided between the parties, but millennial women have moved to become like D plus 50, just these like yawning gender gaps. And it cuts both ways. I mean, in that new NBC poll, men are now plus 14R, which is pretty big. And it's even a shift over just a month ago there. So the gender gap is widening. Um, more women vote. There are there, there are turnout there are percentages. More of them. There are more of them. I mean, you and you can go back my entire lifetime, this has been true in both midterms and presidentials. So if women are plus 25D and men are, even though men are like now breaking the other way, I mean, what, I guess, Liesl, I'll ask you first, I mean, what as Republicans should we make of this? Is this is this a forever thing? Have we lost women forever? I don't think we've lost them forever. It's a pretty terrifying uh, proposition in terms of this cycle. And when you look at undecided voters right now in many of these battleground races, a lot of them are more female. They're, they're breaking against us pretty significantly. And that's what's most terrifying, I think, for these races is if we're going into them tied or up a couple on election day, I, that's hard. That's very hard because if we have a big undecided group breaking but against us who are mostly women um, who don't like the president, that's a, you know, that's a tough calculation. And in terms of it not – I don't think it's permanent because I see this and I'm, I'm interested in how y'all – if you agree or how you see this, I, for them, this is very much like a character election, um, which is why Republicans are in so much trouble with women. If it could be about policies for them, I think we obviously be in much better shape because actually suburban women, college educated women that we're talking so much about this cycle, they agree with Republicans on many issues. They actually, they're with us on the economy. Many of them agree with us on healthcare because they're totally against single payer. Maybe you've seen that in some of your groups, uh, Kristen. But we have a good bucket in, in terms of law and order. They're, they're very much in Republican camp. It's just this election for them has become a character ele election. It's a referendum on the president. And, um, and I, you know, I kind of joke with a lot of the members that I'm working with in their districts, it's they actually don't like their member of Congress. They like them. A lot of them are going into to their elections with pretty high images and good approval ratings. It's just not about them. And um, so, I, so I don't think that we've lost them forever. I think there are a lot of things, and you've written about this uh, many times, things that we need to do to make sure that we can uh, communicate with them in a way that makes sense. And we have to have a party that looks more inclusive of women. But... Um, I'm optimistic, maybe not for this cycle with women, but it, for a future. Well, there's also the question of female candidates. And Correct. one thing I, I got asked um, earlier this week at the – I was at this like Citizen by CNN conference and I was on a panel about, uh, you know, is this going to be the year of the woman? And something they mentioned was they said there are lots of female candidates and that they're running campaigns that are putting their gender more at the forefront, right? They're running ads where they're like – I'm driving a minivan. I'm putting on makeup. I, you know, here's, it, you know, it's not just I, I'm running the same kind of ad that a guy might run. Is that something that, is that just you know choosing a few examples, or is that a real trend that you're seeing? Um, I think women candidates this cycle, and I can speak more to the 
Democratic side, I, I think they're trying to run as the authentic people they are. Mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes in the past, I'd be curious, Margie, if you agree with this as someone who works behind the scenes on these candidates, which I don't do, I just do the independent side. I, I feel sometimes that the consultants have tried to get these female candidates into, you know, you have to be show you're a strong leader. You have to put on your suit and walk through the corridors of your executive office building. And, you know, you've really got to be tough. And I'm seeing more this cycle of, you know, I guess I hate to use the term, but softening up of these women and not trying to sort of put them into that that box, which which I think is effective. Yeah, it, it varies tremendously. I mean, I think there's been this conventional wisdom about how women candidates are supposed to look and sound and dress and this and that, that maybe sometimes people overcorrect for or and then there are campaigns where people are not really planning for that when they should, you know, like I remember somebody telling me like they had a problem on their campaign team. This was years ago and I don't remember who it was. So I think it's fine. I think I'm okay. I don't think <laughs> but the, uh, the, you know, the person talking to me said, yeah, you know, our candidate really wants to wear this animal print jacket and everybody on the team, you know, told her that she can't. And I was like, which animal? I'm like, actually, wait, never mind. I don't really need to <laughs> I don't need to know the answer to that to tell you that it's probably better depending on where you are to not wear it. You know, so there is that like that, you know, hang up, right? That that um default that maybe we've had for a long time. But I think, you know, I think lots of candidates, men and women, have been trying to break out of that box that there's a certain way that a candidate should look and being authentic in whatever way is a way of standing out when people hate politicians. And I think that's just a global trend now that you're seeing. And there's also the rise of kind of the viral video of a way of breaking through and getting your race kind of on the radar because it's, you know, the number of people who follow house races as closely as you guys is pretty small, finite number of people. So how do you get your house race to capture the national attention? And that's by having some, you know, breakout video where you're doing something, you know, authentic and amazing that people haven't seen before. Like for, you know, the more recent one that I saw, I mean, there've been lots of them, but the uh, the woman whose name I can't remember now, unfortunately, she's running against Peter King and she's, you know, showing about talking about how she uh, lobbied to make sure that she could deduct or she could get paid for her campaign account childcare expenses and showed her with her children, which is not with her really young children, which is not typically what you see a candidate doing in their campaign video. So I think people are responding to that. And I think it also puts Republicans in a lot of races on the back foot because they are unable to be some of them authentic, especially when they're talking. I mean, if you look at the DeSantis Gillum, um, debate that went viral where they're like, is the president a role model? And DeSantis is like, I'm going to say 10 things that are not answering that question. And then and then Gillum just, you know, kind of crushed it by saying, obviously, the president is not a good role model, model for children. That's an example of what it's like when a Republican has a harder time being authentic and the Democrat can say exactly what's on their mind. The president is not a good role model for children. Obviously. And and so that's different than having your kids in the video, but it's part of this larger trend of people want to feel that they can connect to a candidate. Well, what are you guys paying attention to or following in these final weeks in terms of polling? Are there things like are standing out to you that give you hope, Kristen? Are there things that are like red flags? Well, now you got to get into the nitty gritty, like has early voting started and how does early voting benefit? Is that early voting benefit the Democrat or Republican? Is it just election day voters moving up or is there some trend and 
what do we make of this? And, you know, how are undecideds breaking? Are there even undecideds? I mean, a lot of races, there aren't enough undecideds to even look at them in any kind of real way. Um, You know, how are the patterns changing over time? And is that just fluctuation from pole to pole? Or is there some real movement happening? I mean, you know, how are people getting their information? In a lot of these districts, you have one newspaper, you know, yeah, I've been looking a lot at these at I just wanted to see trend lines, right? You know, in these past wave elections, you know, things look bad and then all of a sudden you get a couple weeks out and then they look real bad real fast. And I feel like that hasn't happened yet. That the president's job approval is, you know, gosh, it's where it was when he was inaugurated. You know, we back a year ago, I was used to call the president Mr. 40%. And then like his approval would sink below there and be like, oh, I can't call him Mr. 40%. Now I can't call him Mr. 40% because he's like 44%. So the I just feel like the trend lines have not shown a race like falling out of Republicans' control at the last minute. However, it may just be that it was never in our control to begin with and that, like, Trump job approval at 44 just doesn't matter because there are so many districts that Donald Trump didn't win where Republicans are going to have to overperform him. And if they don't, I mean, you you start with Democrats basically having the House. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing, too, is what happens with men. I mean, we talk about how women are doing, but if men vote Republican – Will women have to? Women will have to vote Democratic by an even larger margin, and that would be unusual to have men and women vote in opposite directions and have the Democrats win. When that usually happens, Republicans win. So that's you know that would really make the the role of women voters and women candidates really quite something. I mean, to the point you guys were talking about earlier, like I don't think it's healthy for anybody, the Republican Party or the rest of us. To have the you know the party that has all three chambers to be dominated by white men and the people who vote for it and vote in their primaries and the and elected officials, so I don't know if the results of this election change that or if it just continues that pattern because that's you know the the results will continue to have that pattern and the people who are left will you know will be you know perpetuating that pattern. What I'm also wondering about long term, you know, so let's you know we talked a little bit about the the Kavanaugh. Uh, issue and you know did that or did that not really change things in any of these house races? I mean, again, if you if you're looking at that NBC poll over the last month, suddenly men becoming much more Republican, were women staying just as Democratic as they were? However, did the Kavanaugh situation mean that a woman who was already going to vote Democratic is now voting Democratic and she's giving fifty bucks online to her favorite right. candidates and she's doing three extra door knocking shifts and and does that have long term effects where even if Democrats aren't picking up forty, fifty, sixty seats this time, that in the same way that Republicans suddenly found new people becoming activists and engaged with the Tea Party movement in twenty ten, is this even if Democrats don't, you know, completely run the table this time, are they building up a new base of activists? Yeah, well, this is where I'll contradict myself from what I said earlier <laughs> about uh Republicans not losing women forever, is that that is one thing that does scare me a lot, is that a lot of women who were, I would say, in a very sort of independent-leaning women, not political, they would vote for a Republican, they'd maybe vote for a Democrat. I mean, they would kind of switch parties back and forth. They really, if, if you talk to them, and, and Kristen, as you have in focus groups, they really did vote for the person. And now a lot of them have turned into Democratic activists. And I, I am just shocked as I talk to friends of mine even around the country who are now part of Moms Demand Action, who went to a women's march, who did things that they never did before. And that does scare me in how, once again, 
I don't think they disagree with us on big policy issues. And they should lean Republican with the right sort of candidate in many places. However, I worry that they've now turned into an activist. And how do we then pull them back from that? And that could be tricky. That raises another question in my mind, which is about one issue where I wonder have women drifted away from Republicans? And that's on the issue of guns. Um, you know, that there's been a lot of activism around that issue. I feel like it's the sort of thing where in past election cycles, Republicans would run ads about, like, I'm going to defend your Second Amendment rights. And it feels like, I- I'm throwing this question to the Democratic side of the table, that, that Democrats are putting that issue, that their their positions uh, more in the forefront in ads this year. Is that something that's, is that a p- pattern you're seeing? And do you feel that that's helping to bring more women voters over? Yeah, I think I think Democrats, particularly in the close-in suburbs, are talking more about guns than they than they have normally, and I I think it's an important issue for a lot of suburban women, um, and it's something that's sort of getting them activated. I was just struck there was the the Kaiser Family Foundation poll that you know asked what your top issue was, and they found you know economy one, healthcare two, but it was guns was second, and I think among female voters it was like much higher than it was for men as like an issue priority. Right, and the Wesleyan Media Group, which codes all the ads that candidates run show that more Democrats are running ads on guns, which, you know, I can't remember when that's been true before. That seems new and recent. And I think it's just part of this larger thing that, you know, I don't I don't want this to be the case where women feel that Republicans are not, you know, they're not really speaking to them. You know, they're not really trying to reach out to them because I think the, you know, the language around guns and a variety of other, other issues would be different different if the Republican Party and its leadership had a plan that was like, OK, we don't want to lose women voters. And so we're going to try to, you know, speak to them about some of the issues that they care about. But I, think, I do think it's regionally based, too, yeah, I would say. Like, it, it's definitely regionally based. And the other thing, I just want to go back to the long-term impact of sort of this female activism and sort of what the election looks like this time. One of the things I think is really interesting is that, you know, look, since 2010, the House battleground has been in the same number, same districts, same right. parts of the country. It's been really limited. And this cycle, it's expanded. And Democrats, you know, may not win the Beto O'Rourke Senate race. We may not win some of these Texas races that you know, MJ Hager in Texas 31, and now suddenly Florida 15 and the Tampa exurbs is competitive. We may not win those races this time, but the idea that there are active, popular Democratic candidates getting signs put up, I mean, you just hear anecdotally, um, you know, a friend of ours who is a reporter in Texas as she drives through Republican Fort Worth and sees Democratic signs everywhere, and this has never happened before. So I do think that there's a longer-term impact of just having viable candidates and most of whom really fit their district. Richard Ojeda in West Virginia 3 fits that district. And whether or not he wins or loses, the voters in that district, when they think of a Democrat, they will think of Joe Manchin and, and Richard Ojeda just as much, if not more, than, say, Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. And I think that's an important thing for right. the Democratic they Party's me, brand. They, by the way, they, they played me the Richard Ojeda ad uh, right before we taped. And I, now I can't stop thinking of him as Channing Tatum from <laughs> Logan Lucky. So they may be thinking of him as a Democrat. I'm thinking of him as Channing Tatum. That works, too. That works, too. He's, I would imagine he'd be OK with that. <laughs> uh, so I... Look, my my last question to you all is one that's maybe a little more sort of polling wonkiness for our listeners who who stick with us this long. I mean, the world of polling has changed a lot. We talk on this show all the time about the things you need to be doing to do a poll correctly. And in a year like this where it seems like there could be 
big shifts in who turns out and who doesn't, but we don't know yet exactly what that looks like. I have to imagine polling in some of these House districts is enormously complicated. As consumers of this kind of stuff to advise people on strategy, I mean, what are you looking for to know, okay, do I feel like this poll has a pretty good handle on what turnout in this district is going to look like? Boy, that's a good question. Uh, you know, for, for me, I like to have as many data points as possible, put them all together. We work with pretty sophisticated analytics folks to say, well, you know, here's the five polls over the last three weeks. Here's the fundamentals of the district. What does that all mean? And still, you know, if pollsters are all underestimating Latino turnout, that could sort of be blown off the door. So I think you have to just look at what, you know, a surge model looks like, look at what a baseline model looks like. And um, for us as Democrats, you know, our goal is to get to the majority. We've got to get to 23 seats. So that's why you don't see Democrats walking away from seats, even if polling shows us with a seven-point lead. You know, we're, we're not walking away from those districts. We have to stay in, see them through, and make sure they end up in our column. Yeah, I think, uh, I think the one great thing that's come out of the New York Times upshot polling is just showing how hard it is to get people on the phone oh, to yeah. <laughs> answer a survey. So to Alice's point, I mean, you do have to have many data points. I think qualitative data is so important. I mean, Kristen, that's what you're an expert at. Just to once again, I mean, it's not really determining turnout like a quantitative can and, and you can't put those models together, but just in terms of actually talking to people, like sometimes now when I look at all these pieces of data, I just want to like go to the grocery store in a district and ask 10 people like what they think that you might get a better read on where people are. Because it is, I mean, I, there are so many public polls that are just terrible and wrong and you guys look at them all the time. But even in our internal surveys, which I think we're able, like Ali said, to model the district in a way that we think where turnout will be. I mean, once again, in a lot of these districts that are just decided by a couple thousand voters, if you're off just a bit, I mean, you're really off. Right. Yeah. No, I, I mean, in the, in the upshot, I guess it's made more people become armchair house handicappers, right? So, I mean, which I guess, I mean, is that is that good or is that less good? I mean, we had, um, I mean, I heard a story of a candidate who was asked during, I think it was, a, I think it was during a debate where asked by a reporter, at least, about partial upshot data. Like, wow. I was still <laughs> oh, in the field. No. This, is, this is my objection to it. You have let the genie out of the bottle. You can't yeah. get it back. Everybody's going to be using this partial data now. Ugh. Yeah. Nate so, Cohen, you wild man. So, but I mean, <laughs> but there's so much to, like, keep track of when you're studying house races this closely. So I was out uh, this was several years ago. I was out at brunch with somebody who I think was one of Allie's colleagues at the time, or at least at one point. Um, and she had her spreadsheet ready in case, which what happened during brunch, like that chair, chair man or woman calls and says, so-and-so is about to retire. What's going on? And she had to have ready like the 30 things that you need to know about the district just in case somebody retired while she was at brunch, <laughs> you know, which, which, you know, I mean, that was, that was a year where there were a lot of retirements as opposed to this year where you have a little bit more retirements on your side. But, you know, keeping track, <laughs> keeping track of all the various details and fundamentals of a house race is something that, you know, is a, is a specialty that you guys have. Do well, you all think that traditional polling is dead or headed that way? Uh, I mean, I guess it depends on how we define traditional polling. If traditional polling is landline telephone polling, yes. Um, if traditional polling is going out and asking people to give us their opinions via 
the method they use most often to communicate with people, which may be on their mobile phone. Maybe it's text messaging. Oh, God. The advent, guys, <laughs> text messaging polling. It's coming. It's coming fast and furious. Buckle up. It's going to be my, it's going to be Patrick Ruffini driving the truck. <laughs> Get the text message polls <laughs> into your phones. Get excited. I mean, but I, I think the idea that we still go out and ask people for their opinions is not dead. I just think it has to keep evolving into what's the way that people engage with the world? Is it online? Is it via their mobile device? Is it via talking to somebody on their cell? As long as we're adapting to that, I still think people have opinions that they want to share. Yeah. And I, th- and I agree with you that there's a lot you know, the role of qualitative is hugely important. In a house race, I mean, we didn't talk about this that much. In a house race, it's tough for these candidates to really have the impression that they have spent a lot of time laboriously trying to cultivate, you know, I'm independent on this and my specialty is that and I do constituent services on this and, you know, before I was in Congress, I did this, like all that stuff, like not everybody really knows, you know, there are a lot of voters who don't know you know, two thirds, three quarters of all that stuff, despite the effort over years that some of these members have been trying to do. And so it's always a good reminder to see what breaks through in a focus group session and what happens when you show it to people or explain it to people. Do they react differently when they can see an image of or hear a little bit more? Do they come in and they say, like, I don't really know where I know this from, but I feel like they're really good on constituent services or what have you. Um, you don't really know that sometimes until you do, you know, a deep dive with qualitative or ask a a lot of traits in a survey, which you don't always get to do. So those things are important for a house race, even if it's tough for these members to really have a well-defined impression. It's still important to check it out just to even know that it's not well-defined. Even that alone is important. Well, I'm a big fan of online focus groups. That's really hard to do in a house district too, but you can do some national ones or battleground ones. Um, and I think people feel free to tell you what's really on their mind. Um, and you don't have, you know, the potential one random focus group participant hijacking your whole group. They're one-on-one interviews. Yeah. And I think they're really effective. I like them a lot too. I'm a big fan of them. And also, Christine, I'll have to fly all over the place to conduct them. <laughs> yeah. But I love my frequent flyer miles. Yeah, I mean, I've probably done more focus groups this year than – like any other year in the 20 years I've been doing this, I think. It certainly feels that way, but I think that's probably the case. And and, and there could be a variety of reasons why that's the case. And, but I think one of them is because more people are doing, are seeing the importance and value of, you know, you know talking to voters and, and hearing what they have to say. So it's been, it's been very fun, interesting to do. Well, just about two, we're less than two weeks away from election day. So thank you all for joining us as we, uh, as we, come into the home stretch here for the midterms. Um, this has been Kristen Soltis Anderson and Margie Omero for the pollsters and Allie Lapp and Liesl Hickey for House Talk Podcast. Uh, you can f- where can we find you guys? We're on Twitter at, at House Talk Pod. You can find us there and um, we're on iTunes. You can find us at, at the pollsters individually at, at Margie Omero and at K Soltis Anderson or www.thepolsters.com. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to Thanks, you guys next guys. week. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. You.